<clears throat> last, uh, last time I preached here, I preached on Jonah 1. And uh, so I'm going to follow course and do preach on Jonah 2 and, uh, and see what lessons God has for us um, from... Can you hear me okay? Am I on? Okay, perfect. My ears are, are not getting better. Um, <laughs> they're getting... Sometimes I feel like... Um, so I'm going to preach on Jonah 2. And I believe God has some important lessons for us um, from this uh, interesting chapter, from this interesting story. And we read at the end of Jonah 1 that God provided a big fish, right, to, uh, to swallow Jonah. He was thrown into the depths of the sea and God sent this big fish and scooped him up. And uh, there he spent three days and three nights in the belly of that great fish. We know that Jesus alludes to this strange story. And uh, it's a foreshadowing of, of what Jesus would endure when he died on the cross. In Matthew twelve forty, it says that when some Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you, Jesus responded, Only a wicked and an adulterous generation asks for a sign but none will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was in the three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be there three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah and now someone greater than Jonah is here. So chapter 2 starts from inside the fish where Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. And do we have that? Excellent. Excellent. Let's read from verse 1. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me, you hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again towards your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep waters or the deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountain I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord, my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah out onto dry land. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Amen. Amen. I was curious, and so I, I 
I searched to see what kind of species of fish or whale is in the Mediterranean or into the very place where Jonah was sailing. And uh, apparently there's this sperm whale that weighs 35 tons and it's 16 feet long in the Mediterranean. So, you know, from that perspective, it's possible. Yet I don't think it's uh, beyond God that he could just create a fish out of thin air to swallow Jonah up. He created the heavens and the earth by the word of his mouth. He can do as he pleases. But second, and just for fun, I had to wonder, what was it like to be in the belly of a fish? We, some of us have gutted fish and it doesn't smell too good, does it? And to be in there for three days, three days and three nights, dark, slimy, very rough if that fish was on the move, looking for stuff to eat. He was probably bouncing all over the place in there. I don't know. But I'm sure it was smelly. I'm sure it was smelly. Last year, we had a goat named Ned. And uh, Ned, Ned got big, okay? And, and when he was small, he would jump up onto your lap, and he would lay down, he'd rub. He was the friendliest goat you ever saw. He was just, he was a gem. We loved him. But Ned got older, and uh, he entered into fatherhood. And uh, he wanted to have children, children of his own. And uh, you know what goats do when they want children? Um, they start to stink. They really start to stink. And it got so bad that he would come up and he'd rub up against you and we'd go into the house and, and we just, the smell would be all over us. And so we had to call Ray and Tina and say, can you come please take this goat from us and, and, and give it to a new home. And uh, so Ned went to a new home, um, you know, someone that hopefully didn't mind the smell. Um, so that's where we trust Ned went to. Um, <laughs> that's what we say. Um, sorry, Adele. Um, but, but, but maybe Jonah came out and he, and he stunk. You know when you go on vacay, maybe back in the day, you went with your brothers and sisters and your cousins and nobody had deodorant and the stock, socks were stinky and I mean the car just stank and you just couldn't get rid of the B.O. Maybe it stank like that. I'm not sure. Um, but I'm sure it was quite stinky when Jonah got out of, uh, he got out of that fish. He probably smelled worse than anything. And we know that Jonah didn't want to go to the Ninevites, right? That was the last place he wanted to go because he wanted judgment for the Ninevites. And he knew that God wanted to show compassion and mercy. So Jonah probably thought, I'm not going to wash myself off because I'm going to go into that community and everybody's going to disperse. And it's going to be how I like it. You know, so he probably just enjoyed that smell, right? Because he didn't want to go there. But the third observation was Jonah most likely didn't write this prayer when he was in the belly of the fish. It was probably more of a grunt and a groan and a cry than anything. Probably after he got, um, he got vomited out of that fish and maybe he was walking to Nineveh, that prayer came to him. Maybe it was after this whole event was over. It's hard, but it's a deeply poetic prayer. It's well thought out. I don't know if it was me. I think I, I would have been full of fear in the belly of that fish or in the mouth of that fish, wherever he was. And I'd be wondering, you know, what would death by digestion 
feel like? <laughs> Would it be quick? <laughs> Would it be, I don't know, I never heard of such a thing, but, you know, that's what was happening, death by digestion. But then coming to my senses, I, I think my prayer would be more like, please help me, God. I'm so sorry. Please, Lord, just do something. I'll do what you want. Just get me out of here. Just, just don't let me die this way. This is not how I want my legacy to end. How many of us have prayed in that situation where we knew that nothing else was working? So we prayed and we prayed and we cried out to God. It is very clear that Jonah knew the Psalms very well. Many of the lines, and I looked this up just yesterday, many of the lines are similar to what we hear in the Psalms, almost identical. But the problem in this chapter, and for Jonah, was that he was never meant to be thrown overboard in the first place and put out to sea. It's obvious that if Jonah had done what God had asked him to do, he, he would have missed out on a three-day biology lesson from inside the fish. But disobedience, especially toward God, has its consequences. I know that that's true in my own life. When I'm living in sin, when I'm doing things I shouldn't do, or I have not done things I should do, I feel it in my bones. I feel it in my heart. And I know that it's time to get right with God. And that's where I need to go for a walk with my brother, or a good friend that I trust. We need to talk through some things. And I know that often when I say things that I shouldn't, and I often do, maybe negative things, I feel God penetrating my heart, telling me no. 1 Samuel twelve fifteen it says, But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but you rebel against His commandments of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. But we also know that God is kind and patient, not wanting to give judgment, but He desires mercy first and foremost. And Jonah is learning, and we see this in part of his prayer. In verse 8, he says, Those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy or forsake the mercy that could be theirs. Jonah's running from God was a form of really selfishness and idolatry. You see, if you're running away from God like Jonah did, then you need to, you're running towards something else. See, Jonah ran towards his idea, his hurt, his own sense of judgment. He knew that if he preached God's judgment, then God's character of love and compassion would fall on them and they would repent and they would turn from their cruelty. Jonah didn't want that, but God did. Yeah, they deserve judgment. But God's mercy triumphs over judgment. But Jonah was trying to play the judge. And so God asked him in chapter 4, what, what right do you have to be angry? Should I not care for this great city who cannot tell their right hand from their left hand? God cared for those people who were living sinful lives. But in this prayer of Jonah, no one else is mentioned except for God. Not his family, not his preaching or prophet practice, not even the mission to preach the Ninevites. His gratitude was simply towards God for rescuing him and the relief 
that banishment from God's presence was diverted. Nothing else mattered for Jonah in that moment. His greatest pain was not the calamity of what was happening, but his separation from God. Really, Jonah describes the Heidelberg Catechism very well in narrative form. We see his utter misery. We see that the only rescuer was God himself. And we see that more perfectly in Jesus Christ. And his response was gratitude. Listen to Jonah. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas. I said, I have been banished from your sight. And the earth beneath barred me forever. You see, he recognized his, minis- his misery. He realized that it was only God he needed to fear because he was the only one who would have compassion and love and have the power to save him. You see, when we truly fear God, nothing else will be fearful or scary. But when we don't fear God, everything else becomes fearful and scary. Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One understanding. So we shouldn't wait for God to allow us to be thrown overboard into the waters of hardship, suffering, or calamity in order to wake us up or steer us away from disobedience. And it's true that not every calamity or hardship is a result of disobedience. I want to be clear on that. It's simply because we live in a sinful world. But also those opportunities, those calamities, are an opportunity to cry out to God and see what God can do. God disciplines those He loves. But He also calls us to grow and to trust Him at first and foremost. Those who love me will keep my commandments, says Jesus. You see, God has always been concerned for the brokenhearted, His image bearers. God's concerned about those who live selfish, cruel, and godless lives. We see it on every page of the Bible, pretty much. But God can't be compassionate without first being holy. And at some point, His sin, His justice on sin needs to be appeased. And we see this all through the Old Testament. Nineveh was in such a spot. The prophet Nahum says Nineveh is a city of bloodshed. We see this bloodshed in so many inner cities in the states right now. We see this bloodshed in so many countries of the world. And it continues today, whether it's by guns or by immorality or by our words, by our negativity, by our judgment of the other. I think the biggest sin out there today is not immorality or guns or anything like that, but it's pride. It's pride. It's wanting our own way. Wanting our rights. Wanting us to play judge when only God alone could be the judge. But it's also true that God can't be holy without being compassionate and good even towards the people who were so messed up that they called wrong, right, and right, wrong, evil, good, and good, evil. It's quite a conundrum for God. Jonah 4, God said to Jonah, 
Should I not have a concern for that great city of Nineveh, for which there's more than 120,000 people who can't tell their right hand from their left hand? You see, because God is so holy and good and compassionate, and because He created people in His image, He cares for us. He cares for this community of Athens. He cares for this church. He cares for the lost and the brokenhearted. And God's patient. He has all the time in the world. I can't imagine how God dealt with Sodom and Gomorrah. For the people in the days of Noah, it must have grieved his heart. The judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. But mercy triumphs over judgment, says James. And God's mercy and grace saturates this book and all of Scripture in our world today. God loves the world and He loves us so very much. It's against His nature for Him not to be concerned about the problems that are happening in our world today. That's why He used this miraculous intervention to keep Jonah alive because He had a job for him to do. Many have seen miracles in their own lives and they're very grateful to God. It could be the most profound experience in someone's life and this is great. But like Jonah, we have work to do. We're the body of Christ and we have a purpose. We're to be an extension of His voice, His hands, His feet to offer compassion and mercy. We are salt and light. I can't tell what each of you are to do specifically. But I know that it's not nothing. And I'm preaching to myself here too. Some might say, well, there's nothing to do. The world is better than ever. As science progresses, we know more. We become more civilized. The government will fix all our problems. Well, not so. We know mental health, loneliness, depression are rampant. Human trafficking, human trafficking, the complete sexualization of the human body, are rampant in most movies and media. Pride and the lure of wealth is one of the biggest deceptions, and it's never been higher. Porn addiction is at an all-time high. Just look at the statistics related to alcohol and drug abuse. This is just the start. Wealth inequality. Middle income earners live higher, way high above their means. The consumption of waste is a major problem in our world today and it's killing the environment and it's slowly killing us. But then the real absurdity is that 71% of the world's population remain low income, living off less than $10 a day, according to a new Pew Research. The point is that the church has so much to do Yeah, we can't do it all, but we can do something. And we are doing something. Sunday school, VBS, our tithes and our offerings, our ministering to each other. We are doing lots. But I believe that the church can do more. I believe that God wants us to to do more. The Christian singer and songwriter Michael W. Smith said, I think that if the church did what they were supposed to do, we wouldn't have anyone sleeping on the streets. But idolatry, selfishness, individualism, 
wanting our rights just like Jonah wanted to do his own thing. Cloud our concern for others. Cloud our discipline to pray. Our willingness to say with God or to say with Isaiah, here am I, send me. You see, we are either for God or against him. We are either seeking him or we're pushing him away. And ultimately, there is no middle ground. It's true, there's not, often not a quick fix, and I'm not minimizing the pain and suffering that's out there. But there's hope in Jesus Christ. And if we really believe that, what if, what if, what if we really trusted in God to do what only He can do? We also need to be aware that there's a spiritual battle going on between good and evil and for the souls of humanity. The Bible's clear on this. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but by principalities and powers, against rulers of darkness of the world, against the spiritual wickedness in high places. And that is true. One of the devil's biggest lies today is that I don't exist. We have to be very careful. We have to maybe get some good teaching on that. I'm not there yet. You see, the main thing about Christianity, about our faith, is not about what we do. Not about what we even do for Him. But it's about, a relation, about the relationships we maintain with Him and with others. And the atmosphere produced by those relationships. Doesn't mean simply those relationships with people that think and, and are like us. No. That have our tastes, that carry our values. It's about having relationships with the other. With those who are unlike you. Like the Ninevites. Those however these relationships are what our faith is all about. This is really the essence of Christianity, is relationships. It's what God is asking us first and foremost to look after and to nurture. And it's the one thing that continually is being assaulted and destroyed. And we see that in our world today. We see that in our family relationships. The devil is always trying to assault our relationships with each other, our relationships with the other. And really the only way to get right is to first repent in our own hearts, to get right with God in our own hearts, to confess our sins, to make right what's been wrong. And as soon as we do that, we all of a sudden see that God was there all along. And his forgiveness and his mercy and his compassion are there in an instant. We begin to repent. And we begin to confess. I've seen it in my own life. What's the hope in the story of Jonah? Well, listen to Jonah. He said, in my distress, I what? I called to the Lord. And he what? He answered me. 
from the deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help and you listened to my cry. The marvelous truth was that when Jonah was put in the press and squeezed, and he was on the edge of the cliff, so to speak, and the only recourse was to jump, God came through. Jonah listened to God and was willing to even sacrifice himself by being allowed to be thrown overboard so others could be saved. When he did, God had mercy on him and he answered him. And just a funny thing about, uh, about this going off the edge of a cliff is my son got a VR, um, virtual reality thing he bought with his own money. And, and so you, you put these goggles on and, and, uh, and all of a sudden you're in this elevator. And uh, you have these buttons, and it's got these different levels. And so you press the one button that says plank. And so you press plank, and the elevator doors open. And you have a plank on the top of a building, and you have to walk that plank. And you could barely do it. Uh, my reaction, Heather got it on video, was just hilarious. Just hilarious. And, uh, and I, I, actually, I tripped and I fell. Aaron had to catch me. And uh, so we had our whole family try it. Even, even Heather's dad tried it. And, well, he had no reaction at all. He just walked right off that plank and didn't think nothing of it. I couldn't do it. My, my dad, he just, no, no, he couldn't do it. And, like, it was crazy. You know, and you went off that cliff and you had to keep thinking. You had to keep thinking that, you know, I'm on solid ground. I, I, I'm on solid floor right here. This is just, just virtual reality. Don't. And so you had to kind of, you know, think Maybe it's the same when we're in those calamities, when we have to know that we are on solid ground. Solid ground of Jesus Christ. Because our salvation, our hope, our rescue belongs to the Lord. In Jonah's worst moment, God was there. If I go down to the deep, you are there. God is a God of second, third, and fourth chances. Listen to Jonah's cry and his thankfulness. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again towards your holy temple. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. God rescued him. The psalmist, too, seen God's deliverance and was thankful. We see that all through the psalms. Psalm 31, 32, in panic I cried out, I am cut off from the Lord. But you heard my cry for mercy and answered my call for help. These stories are all through the Bible. Adam and Eve, Cain, Abraham, Moses, Joseph, Peter, Paul. The good news is that God is our great rescuer because he's so kind and compassionate, desiring mercy over judgment. Even toward the cruel and wicked Ninevites, God wanted to show compassion. The proper response is not, thank you for rescuing me so I can go run away again. The response is not, thank you, but, 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 the response is not, thank you, but no thank you. Rather, it's thankfulness to God, and this brings honor and glory to who he is. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord. And my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. You see, Jonah thanks his God for rescuing him from the pit and from death. 
as he was seeking, the most important thing was his right relationship with God. Jonah had nothing left, and his only recourse was prayer, however faint it was. But it came from the depth of his soul. And all Jonah could do was declare that his God is the great deliverer, and salvation alone comes from the Lord. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. And because in the end, in the end, deliverance, eternal life, freedom from the curse comes from the Lord. Salvation comes from the Lord, says Jonah. Does it come from a nation or a race or a language or a political party? It does not come from anything earthly at all. No salvation comes from the Lord. And pointing toward the Messiah, Jesus Christ, this story foreshadows Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. Death didn't hold him. After three days and nights of imprisonment, he was alive and free. God will rescue us when we're overwhelmed with the storms of life. God will have compassion and mercy even when those storms are caused by our disobedience. I've had heard story after story after story of people who have testified to these situations where God came through in a way that was not deserved but least expected. And His timing is impeccable. This is our God. And His grace and compassion and mercy was shown most clearly through the death and resurrection of His one and only Son. I wanted to share my story of Jeff. Jeff is a missionary. And uh, Jeff's got quite a story. Jeff grew up in a nominal Catholic home. And um, didn't really have much to go on, but uh, eventually, grade seven, he started to do alcohol, and he started to do drugs. By the time he was in high school, he was dealing drugs. Eventually, he was dealing drugs from the States and bringing them over into Canada, and, uh, and he was a high roller. He was... Uh, but eventually, you know, the gang that he was involved in was so bad, was so mean, you know, that they got kicked out of every bar, out of every place, and I believe it was a Kitchener or a Guelph area. He got kicked out of, I mean, there was, and, uh, but yet he kept doing it. He kept trying to fill that void. Because if he didn't do that, the only recourse was death. And he thought about taking his life many times, but he just kept going back to that lifestyle, to that that money to those, to the, to the, the, yeah, I'm trying to look for a word. Back to that lifestyle, back to that pit. And one night he got on his knees and he cried out to God. He said, God, if you're there, please answer me. Please do something. Two weeks later, he had his answer. And the police showed up at his home and put him in handcuffs. And took him off to the Guelph Penitentiary. And there he sat. He was given a Bible and he dusted off that Bible. And he began to read. 
They began to realize that this is true. They began to go to chapel every Sunday. Began to meet one-on-one. And eventually he's led out of prison, but like an elastic, right? You know, we're, we're, we're drawn to God, but then we just keep pulling and it snaps us back to our sinful lifestyle. He got back into it, almost even heavier than he did before. And he was hauled off to jail again, incarcerated. And there, once again, he was mentored, loved, went to chapel, learned. But in that jail cell, this, this comes down to loving the other. This comes down to loving those that we don't want to love, that we'd rather show judgment to, that we would rather see dead. And he had an enemy in jail that he saw that he wanted to kill him, whether it was a rival gang or whatever it was. And, and so he walked by his jail cell, and there, there was a, a plexiglass window. I don't know how it was set up. And he saw this enemy that looked at him and, and said, you're dead. He, he'd go like this dead you're dead and every time he would do that and and so we started planning how could i get him dead before he can get me dead just kind of that what am i going to do by god's providence he got a cellmate that cellmate was his enemy's brother jeff had all the time in the world he shared the gospel with his brother and he came to a saving knowledge of jesus christ And then a letter got written and was sent to Jeff's adversary, the guy that was, you're dead, you know. It's it's funny the way Jeff, you have to watch the video, it's hilarious. Um, You know, you're dead. He did that, the letter was sent. The next time he saw his enemy, his enemy said, thank you, thank you. He was not his adversary anymore. What did Jeff do? He was just obedient. He just shared the gospel with this man. His life was transformed and it transformed his brother's life. That's all that God is asking us to do. It's all about a relationship. Not with people that are like us. Yeah, that's important, of course. Everybody does that. It's a relationship with the other. Those who are not like us. Those who are deep in sin. And there's so much work to do in this community of Athens. Just a little bit that I, if you listen long enough, you see the pain and you see the hurt. We've got one lady that through a terrible time back in the spring. We all know the story. She's still hooked on drugs. And she needs someone to love her. We went to go visit her. We just prayed for her. And I don't have prayers. I, okay, let's, I don't, what do I pray here? And we prayed for her and she just, her and her boyfriend, they just wept. He just wept. I didn't have any money to give. I didn't have a place for them. You know, I don't know, but they wept. And so I just thought the other day, I'm just going to reach out to her again and just see what we can do. And it's like, can I come and pray for you again? And bring someone else with me. You never do those things alone. And uh, I said, absolutely, I would love that. I would love that. So I can see God working on her heart, but we need the strength of the community to continue to pray, to support. There's amazing things that we can do if we band together. There's programs such as Stephen Ministries that uh, Mark Skocky was telling me about it. Joanne's involved in it out in Alberta. And it's a ministry where they take lay leaders such as ourselves and and, and get them to, to really 
have relationships with the other, but it has good teaching. It teaches them how to deal with suffering. If you go to someone who's grieving, you don't give them a happy song, right? You need to know those things or you're going to offend someone, right? Um, You don't go and, and pray against the spirit of grief either. When someone's grieving, you need to grieve with them. And so the program's been in for like 40 years and uh, it just has great um, teaching on these practical things where we can go out into our community and transform people. Jesus can transform people through us. Did it through Jeff. And I know he's doing it through many of you. I think we just need to band together and just just consider the needs in our community. And as a church, we really can be salt and light. We don't have to be that community that that people look at as hypocrisy, but a community that truly loves, that truly prays, that truly cares. I believe then we can stand up for really what we believe and not be assaulted because the people in the community will say, well, they care, they love. I've never seen people like that. So I know that what they say, when they say what is true, they really mean it. And why do we all do this? Because of Jesus Christ. He's the greatest man in history. He had no servants, yet they called him master. He had no degree, yet they called him teacher. He had no medicines, yet they called him healer. He had no army, yet kings feared him. He won no military battles, yet he conquered the world. He didn't live in a castle, yet they called him Lord. He ruled no nations, yet they called him King. He committed no crime, yet they crucified him. And he was buried in a tomb, yet he lives today in our hearts. He was crucified for you and for me. He sacrificed himself for us because God so loved the world just as he loved the Ninevites. Just as he loves you and me. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. So are we going to run? Are we going to sleep like Jonah did? Or are we going to say with Isaiah, here am I, send me. Let us bow before our Heavenly Father. God, Heavenly Father, good and compassionate God, we see that you are on the move. Help us to be willing to take part, to join together, to join in what you are doing. We know, Lord, that you're not, we're not waiting on you, but you're waiting on us. We have often not wanted to go with you. We, we have been sleeping when we shouldn't. So we ask for forgiveness. And we now ask and we freely offer, we freely um, accept your forgiveness and your compassion and your mercy to us. It's your nature. It's who you are. But we know in the end, Lord, that with whatever happens, we are so grateful and we can say with the prophet Jonah, Salvation belongs to the Lord. Amen. Amen.